Exceeding Expectations, episode 83. I think so often when you hear about sort of the term expectations, we think of it in terms of it being high or low. But I think people often ask themselves the question, what do most people do in most situations most of the time? And I think that's a kind of a majority thinking mindset. We're guided by what most people do. And I think if you're going to exceed expectations, you can't think that way. You've, you've got to think the opposite. You know, what's never been done before? You know, what? How can I, you know, break through this barrier? How can I do something different from everybody else? Welcome to the podcast where we give you ideas how to give your customers a fantastic experience. My guest this week is Darren Harris, who has the record number of caps playing football for England. If you're wondering why you've never heard of him, he plays for the England blind football team and he has some remarkable stories. He's a very good storyteller, as Darren said. We're going to hear from him in just a few minutes. If you do like this episode, please do share it with someone who you feel could really get some value from it. Uh, Why not subscribe to us on iTunes or any of the other podcast platforms? And please do leave a review. That really helps more people find out about us. It really, in the algorithm, the more reviews we get, the more widely um, distributed, more likely other people are to hear about the, uh, the podcast show. So I hope you do enjoy this week's episode with Darren Harris. Exceeding expectations, and my guest today is Darren Harris. How are you, Darren? Hi, Tony. I'm good, thanks. And you're in, where are you today? Are you in Southern Coalfield today? I'm in Southern Coalfield in North Birmingham. Uh, some people think it's separate from Birmingham, but it's Birmingham, really. Right, and is that a place you know well? I've been here about eight years. Well, I, I am from the Midlands, but from, from Wolverhampton originally, which is just the other side of the M6. And you're, um, I mean, you've got quite a distinguished career, uh, career. We were talking before we started recording about you played for England for how many years was it? 23 years. Well, this when my career started and ended, it was 23 years. I, I did have a sort of sabbatical in the, in the middle with, with judo, but yeah, uh, pretty, pretty prolonged time sort of performing for- at that level. And for anyone listening who's thinking, well, I don't remember hearing of a guy called Darren Harris playing for England, so do you want to fill us in a bit more on that? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, most people don't even know that uh, there is something called blind football. And uh, how the game works is that the ball itself has got ball bearings in, so when it moves, it makes a sound. The game's five-a-side, so mm-hmm. uh, it, it play on a sort of five-a-side pitch, which is enclosed, it's got balls at the side. And I suppose there's three pairs of eyes that kind of assist us. So we've got a goalkeeper who can see, and we've got a coach on the halfway line who's barking instructions, and we've also got someone behind the opposite goal who's also giving us information as well. So there's an awful lot of information that you take in through one sensory input, to be honest. It's, it sounds like you could be overwhelmed quite easily. Yeah, I, when you finish a game, you are utterly exhausted you know it's not just the sort of the physical exerts it's literally the level of concentration that you need to you know listen to all of that information you listen to the ball you listen to information from your teammates listen to said the sighted assistants you're also listening to 
you know, the, the opposition players and what they're saying and where they are, and also trying to block out any any exterior noise from the crowd or whatever happens. So it is, it's, it's pretty tiring. And so how much, um, I'm just trying to think, I mean, I've seen a, a few games of live football, but I'm by no means an expert, but in regular football, there's the physical part of it is, is quite important. And as players get older, the reason they're not able to cut it anymore is because physically they can't handle it. Is that, is it similar in blind football or not? I would say that there is a sort of longer um, time that you could play blind football, mm. partly because it's uh, it's five sides. We've got rolling subs, so you can mm. kind of go on and off and, and recuperate and then come back on again. Um, mm. But also sort of positionally, I, I think what we've seen the game at all levels is that people are playing longer because they've just changed so much about their lives. I mean, mm. I I changed lots and lots of things which I think have helped me prolong how long I played for. Um, mm. The first thing was probably that I, I stopped drinking alcohol <laughs> uh, <laughs> quite a long time ago, pretty much from about 2004 onwards. I haven't really drunk um, much alcohol. Um, added sugar was a, something I've cut out of my diet massively. So mm. uh, I used to love drinking cans of fizzy pop and eating chocolate like like lots of people but I mm. kind of cut all of that out in fact mm. I have a really boring breakfast where, where I literally have porridge and water with just a little bit of salt and, and, a, and a few few raisins and seeds thrown in there mm. um <laughs> it sounds really dull but it it really does help uh the other yeah. thing I, I kind of got into was was stretching so mm. I, I always realized that you know every day you're injured is a day that you couldn't be improving so mm. I did loads and loads of stretching but that's something I learned massively from judo because I used to get mm. to a judo session and and see some of the guys stretching before the session started you know spending a good half an hour stretching before mm. we begun the session and another half an hour afterwards so I'd stretch in the morning I'd stretch at night mm. um and then also just embracing the recovery. So I used to hate ice baths. They are mm. the most excruciating. Well, I mean, I think I think you can all imagine how bad an ice bath is. Mm. And uh, so, and that's there's a video I use in, in, in my talk where I get in and I'm literally screaming, and uh, and all my teammates are kind of gathered around and <clears throat> and having a right chuckle at me, to be honest, because you know mm. I used to sort of deal with it so badly but towards the end of my career I really kind of really kind of embraced it and you know even if we had 10 minutes in the ice bath I would just stay in there for a little bit longer because I just knew that it would help me recover from the game and also just getting your mind ready for discomfort which is ultimately what you experience in a game. Mm. And I think the reason why I asked you that question is because of your explanation before about all of the different, um, you know, you've got all the different people talking to you at the same time, giving you instructions. There's so much to take in. I imagine for the younger players, that that must be a really a lot harder because they're not used to it. And whereas you'd been doing it for so long, you're much more able to to, to kind of run with that, literally. That's a really good point. I think there's a, I think there's an expectation that you know we we see young talent. And we think that they're gonna they're gonna develop at a certain rate. And mm. I used to have actually quite a lot of 
issues in terms of negotiating my contract as, as I got towards the end of my career because they were kind of saying, well, you know, Daz, you know, you're, you're getting old now. You're, you're probably not going to be around for the next cycle. You know, we need to start focusing on the younger players, etc. And I think they expected these players to develop and, and be at a certain point, you know, a year down the road, two years down the road. But I don't think they ever really appreciated how long it, it takes to to get to the level that I got to. And, um, you know, and we've seen players come and go in the time that I've, <laughs> that I've been playing. So, you know, one of the reasons why I play for so long is just probably almost survival of the fittest. Um, and I do remember my very first game, I, I was, I was awful. I mean, I remember coming on as a substitute and my coach taking me off after a couple of minutes because I really struggled. I was just really disorientated, you know, wearing a blindfold because I still had a little bit of vision then and, putting this blindfold on just put me into this sort of pitch blackness and I just didn't know where I was and and what I did was I started to put on that blindfold 10 minutes 20 minutes half an hour before a game so that when I went on the pitch I literally almost forgot about sight that wasn't my sort of primary focus anymore I'd I'd literally gone from from sight to sound and helped that Mm. brain transfer over and Mm. um, yeah people really don't respect that side of it and uh, mm. invest the time to kind of get really good at it and how the i mean how successful were the, you know, in your career playing for England? so yeah i became our, our most capped player of, of all time uh, 162 caps if you ever go to st george's park <clears throat> there is a there's a caps wall there with, you know, Wayne Rooney and David Beckham and all those guys up there. And, you know, my name's up on that wall along with all those players. So that's a very yeah. proud thing for me. And, and obviously, yeah, I've been really fortunate to, to win, you know, quite a few European medals, world medals. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something I look back on with lots of pride. And how did that all start? I mean, how did you get into football? Well, interestingly, my <laughs> my dad's nickname is, is Pele. Uh, he was a brilliant footballer. Um, he, he never became a professional footballer, um, probably because he, he he wasn't able to sort of deal with uh, you know some of the challenges at the time in his life. Um, mm. But I think football was really my DNA. I, I, I played football at school when I was, you know, I was I was I lost my sight. I was losing my sight sort of gradually as I got older. But I went to a mainstream primary school. And I, I played football just like everyone else in the playground, you know, on, on, on the sports field. And um, and I always knew I was quite good. But obviously because I was playing with fully sighted players, I was at a massive disadvantage. Um, but when I went to, to Worcester, which was a special school, I think that's where I really kind of excelled and where I realised that amongst my peers, I, I really stood out. Um, <clears throat> so I think... Yeah, always played football. I was just one of those kids who wanted to kick a ball whenever he could. I, I remember one one winter when we had loads and loads of snow and we kind of wanted to play. So we, you know, we got the shovels out and scraped all the snow off the pitch. You know, there'd be other times when we'd be playing football in the classroom and the teacher would confiscate the ball off us. So we'd get some newspaper and roll it up and get some sellotape and we'd make our own ball. We just, we just wanted to play. Mm. And and so you mentioned before um, you talked about how um, yeah you said it but you said when you you do it in your talk 
So for those listening who are probably not aware, you are a professional speaker. So do you want to tell us about how that came about? After London 2012, you know, lots of athletes or after any kind of major tournament, lots of athletes are kind of considering life after sport, which is a really difficult transition for, for all of us because you develop a real identity for your sport. You know, you can, it's hard to think of anything else because you've put so much time and effort into it, you know. And, um, but I went to an event organised by um, the British Olympic Association and it was there for athletes to go and explore potential avenues they could go down you know when they when their careers finish and at one of the stalls was uh, Alan Stevens actually who was I think then the chairman of the professional speaking association and he kind of said you know you know athletes are, have always got great stories and you know I think this could be a potential avenue he sold it beautifully I didn't know he was a salesman but he sold it beautifully and um <clears throat> so he offered um, free membership to the PSA for a year and I started going to our regional meetings and that was a real shock to me because uh, I don't I didn't realize how good some of the speakers were and one, one of the first speakers I, I ever saw was was David Heiner mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and like like lots of people you put them on a the pedestal and you think wow I can never be like that you know he's amazing at what he does and then he had this one slide and it was a, a quote from Chris Akabusi, and he said, "You know, you don't look, you don't look up to people; you look into them." And I thought, mm. "Wow, that's what you need to do. Instead of putting these people on a pedestal, you go and find out how they got as good as they got." So, literally, mm. I just started to, to sort of study, study speakers. You know, look at what they did. You know, had what they had in their intros, how they closed their talks. You know, what, did they use props? Did they use slides? And I literally sort of tried to study it just in the way I might study an, an opponent for for a match, and, uh, mm. and 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 just really develop my craft that way. Mm. And so, what did you? I mean, how, when did you first start again? Breaks. What was your? What were you speaking about? So I, when I started speaking, I, I I kind of spoke about everything and anything because uh, people would say, "Oh, can you come and do a talk about resilience?" You know, because they knew I'd. You know, I had some challenges in my life and <clears throat> thought I might have a few things to share about adversity. And then people asked me to talk about performance and so I could talk about that. But um, what I talk about now is, is something I call being a, being a real minority and how do you become a minority within your industry? Mm. And I think it really came about because for most of my life, I'd, I'd always been a minority. I'm I'm black and I'm blind and, and for various other reasons I'm, I'm a minority. And, uh, but they weren't particularly empowering ways to stand out for me. You know, I wanted to stand out for, for something you know, of substance, you know, for doing something amazing. And, mm-hmm. and I think becoming a Paralympian was that thing for me that really transformed my life. It was, you know, there's that guy who's, who's the Paralympian. You know, when I walk into a room, you know, if I've got my England kit on or Paralympic kit on. And, and I suddenly realised, you know, through speaking to other people who, who've achieved massive things in their life is that, you know, probably all of us have got something that we've, we've been a minority for in our, in our lives, yet mm. they might not always be the things that we wanted to sort of be known for. And, and, and I just think people can go out and create that thing that makes them a minority for the right reasons. And so that's really what I talk about now. What audiences are you speaking with? Or speaking to? 
So I, I really speak to, uh, speak a lot in, in schools. It's, it's a big, big thing for me. I speak to, to, to small businesses, but I, you know, I speak to corporates as well. And I think, you know, being, being a minority in your industry is obviously a big thing in, in, in any business. That's, that's how, that's what you're known for. That is your differentiating factor. That is, that is your niche, you know, carving a niche for your business in, in this climate is, is massively important. You know, if people are going to come and find you and book you and buy your services, then you have to be known for something. So absolutely, I think it's an essential. And, and with for the, I mean, with this current climate of the, uh, you know, the COVID situation, and most speakers have had all their bookings cancelled. I mean, how I presume it's affected you like everyone else. Are you able to sort of transition to the online world? So I think for me, it's it's given me an opportunity to sort of take stock. Uh, you know, there was a lot of things that I didn't do when I was busy busy speaking. In fact. Uh, I, I was supposed to be in South Africa giving a, a talk at a conference mm. this very week, and that that's been postponed now for mm. for, <laughs> for the reasons that we know. And but you know, it, it's given me an opportunity to you know come on come on podcasts like your own. It's given me an opportunity to go and interview other people that I believe have got a minority mindset and uh, and really learn about how other people have succeeded. Um, it's given me an opportunity to actually develop a, a new speaker showreel. And there, there are so many things that we can do, you know, developing our websites. Um, <clears throat> and yes, some of those things don't bring in bring in uh, the money at this moment in time, but it's really about preparing ourselves for, for when the show gets back on the road so that we're, that we, you know, we're fully, fully operational. Um, you know, I know lots of people have kind of, looked at the online world and going to coaching for example and those types of things to to find a, a sort of secondary income i think the challenge with that is that you're often a bit you know it's a bit mm-hmm. after the the horse has bolted that you probably need to have developed a, a profile and a presence online beforehand because it's going to be those people who are going to be found first and and, and the other big challenge i think is that there's an awful lot of people um, even if you've got an online business that you know, your customers mm. have also lost their income. So there's a lot of people who aren't mm. earning the money they were before. So even if you have got an online product, there's, there's, it's questionable whether they'd be able to kind of pay for your services at this, in this current climate. So I think the real challenge for us all is to really try and support one mm. another, help each other out in these really difficult times. Um, you know, not trying to sell you on anything really at this moment. It's just, you know, for me, it's, it's supporting the clients that I have had and just really almost providing a kind of counselling service and, and, and hoping that when we come out of it, that we're all stronger. And Something you said just better. now about you being interviewing people, um, finding out about how they develop their minority, was it minority mindset? I think you said, but well, can you expand on that a bit more? What do yeah. you mean by that? So I, I believe there is, you know, there is always something that we do um, that, so I use the example of a, of a normal distribution curve. Um, so we, if you think about that, you've got sort of 68% of people who are in the middle of this curve. That's what the majority of people do. Um, and then you've got this 14% who are in the sort of the, the category either side. So that might be the sort of the good category and, and the bad category but then you've got this two percent at the extremes so what i'm interested in exploring is 
those people who are, who, are, who are brilliant, who are the best at what they do, what is it that they do differently? And how is it that they think differently from the rest? Uh, and, and really kind of exploring that, you know, and how did they come to be like that? Because um, I think fitting in is something that is, is, is something that we all have tried to do at some point. And, um, and yet one of the kind of common messages we tell people is, you know, be yourself. Yeah. Often what I've found in my life is when I've tried to be myself, someone will say, well, not, not quite that much though. <laughs> they, they want you to sort of rein, you know, rein your instincts in. Uh, the example I give is, you know, when I was a kid, I, you know, teachers would tell me to sort of sit down and shut up all the time. And, uh, and what I discovered was that that just wasn't natural to me. I ended up being a professional footballer and a professional speaker. So I was just in the wrong environment. And, and, and when I look back on it now, how natural is it anyway for mm. a child to sit down for sort of seven hours a day, you know, and especially in a, an environment now where we're wanting people to exercise more. But, but really um, that was my strength actually. And, 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 and having the ability to sort of, to stick to that and to magnify that is, is how you're going to be successful. It's going to be much mm. easier becoming so what have you discovered good at. You work at something you're bad at, you'll probably be average at best. So obviously, you know, I think we know most of the, the traits that people are better at taking risks. For example, it's really easy to kind of play it safe. Um, but most people who, who achieve massively and, and take what, risks. Um, you know, I, I remember I had to quit my job. Um, I just, well, I decided mm. to quit my job. Um, so I used to work in IT. I, used to, I, I, I was an analyst a programmer. Um, for Capgemini many years ago and what happened in, in 2004 was that we we qualified for the very first Paralympic Games in blind football which was going to be in Athens and then Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland wouldn't sanction us to play as Great Britain I think at the time because they thought that well if we play as Great Britain there's a chance that UEFA or FIFA who are the governing bodies for, for football might say well if you can play as Great Britain um, now why don't you play as Great Britain, you know, in, in other tournaments? Um, so they wouldn't sanction that. And I was a black belt in judo at the time, um, but I, I knew that there was no way I could qualify for the Beijing Paralympics just doing judo, you know, a couple of times a week, three times a week. I knew it had to be something I did full-time, you know, training twice a day, every day, six days a week. And I couldn't do that if I carried on my job. Um and so I remember when I handed in my notice, um, everybody came up to me and said, you know, oh, Daz, I've, I've, I've heard you, you've, you've handed in your notice, you know, where are you off to? You know, because often when people leave a job, it's to go to another company, which is going to pay them more money. Um, so I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. He says, oh, well, what are you going to be doing then? I says, well, I'm actually going to be doing judo full time. I said, well, how much are they paying you? I said, well, um, actually nothing I'm you know I'm hoping that if the results go my way that there's an opportunity that I'll, I'll get mm. onto lottery funding you know maybe a year two years down the road but I'm I'm basically going to kind of self-fund myself um but this is what I really want to do this is this is my dream I remember mm. sit, I was sitting there with one of the guys in my team and, and he'd been in the job for sort of 20 years mm. at that point and I kind of thought to myself mm. 
if I if I don't do this now, I'm probably yeah. going to be where he is in in ten years' time, sitting back, sitting there regretting that I didn't take that risk. Um, so that's that's one of the examples uh, um, of you know, and, and and it's a kind of practical way. It's 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 thinking that we all know that we we can take more risk, mm. but it's scary. It is scary, kind of throwing yourself out there. Um, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. That's that's one of the that's one of the hardest bits. Mm. At no point in those four years leading up to Beijing did I ever know that I was going to qualify for the games. Um, <laughs> but it kind of keeps you honest. It's a little bit like you know, you know, jumping off a cliff, and uh, you know, you don't know if you're going to survive if you hit the bottom. Um, but what it, it kind of keeps you really focused, it keeps you in the moment, it keeps you mm. present. That you, 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 you train hard every how, single day because you want to give yourself. Was the it best diff- more difficult to do judo than football? What it is how did they <laughs> I always say that in, in judo, um, you throw people on the floor, and in football, they throw themselves on the floor. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they're absolutely different. Um, I, but I suppose they were probably different in ways I didn't think as well. Mm. So I think that I one of the reasons why judo really attracted me is because it was it was an individual sport and. You know, I'd, I'd been in so many team meetings with for football where, you know, we talked about, you know, how we were going to how we were going to do things differently when we got back from a tournament and everybody was going to go away and train hard and prepare really well for the next tournament, etc. And sometimes that, that just didn't happen the way before. So I kind of thought with judo, at least, you know, it's only me here. I, I don't have to, you know, I can't blame anyone else. I don't have to rely on anyone else. But actually... You do entirely, mm. you know. You you still rely on on your teammates turning up to training because you don't you don't train on your own. You're still training with a partner. Um, you still have a coach who's who's input on on you making the improvements that mm. you need to make. Uh, so it just wasn't as an individual sport as you might think. Um, but in terms of the mentality, I, I think it's mm. I think it's the same in terms of. You know, you still have to be disciplined. You still have to be dedicated. You still have to be focused. Um, different, there is a different camaraderie, though. Um, so, I suppose we weren't, we were, we kind of, we did support each other a lot, a lot more. So, you know, when we went to tournaments and stuff like that, we, you know, you'd watch watch your other teammates performing, and you'd sort of cheer them on. And, and I remember sort of sitting down and doing a lot of the sort of performance analysis with various teammates, you know, if a, if a coach wasn't around to kind of go through your video footage, because that's probably one way the, the sport has changed massively in the last sort of 10 years is how rigorous the sort of performance analysis has become. Um, you know, it's almost a science within itself now, you know, sort of playing a match through frame by frame and, and saying, okay, this happened here. Why did that happen? And you know what led up to that moment that that happened. And uh, <laughs> and it, it it can become a little bit all-consuming where you literally you probably spend and as much time watching after a while the game you sort of as left you know, playing back the game. You know, what was double what was the reason behind that? that? Were you was it just not possible to continue both?
Yeah, well, yeah. So I, I yeah, I, I didn't do bar. So I stopped football entirely for for a, for a period of time. Um, <clears throat> but I think in in 2011, I suppose I had this kind of unwritten agreement with my performance director that if I didn't really think I had a realistic chance of winning a medal, I didn't want to go to London. And I, I, I achieved my dream of qualifying for Paralympic Games, but I certainly didn't want to go to the Games just to get a tracksuit and a T-shirt and, you know, a load of claps from, from the crowd, you know. I really wanted to go and kind of win, win, a, win, a, win a medal. Um, and I was, I was starting to struggle just with that volume of training. I was, I was 38 at the time. Um, and I thought the amount of training I needed to do to improve, to get to where I needed to get to, my body was really, really struggling. Even with all the things I said before about, you know, all the stretching and, and all the recovery and all that sort of stuff, just, just training twice a day, six days a week was, was taking its toll on my body. So I, I knew it was, I think, you know, when you're done, I think, you know, when you're done, um, when you're performing at that level. And and I probably wasn't going to go back to football, to be honest. I thought I'd be finished, but you know they they asked me back, and um, I realised that you know I still had more to give in in terms of playing football. It's definitely definitely easier on your body, and and also you know the system that we played. I I could let the younger lads do do some of the hard yards for me, and you know use my my brain and my nous to um to sort of. I guess we call it game management, you know. So, yeah, there's there's so much more you can give to a game beyond just physical output, you know. So you can organise, you can communicate well with your teammates, you can, you know, keep keep everyone's spirits up. There's so much more you can add beyond just running around like a headless chicken. Mm. Um, let's go back a little bit. You told me about um, there was a, a maths teacher you had who particularly inspired you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I had a maths teacher who inspired me both at school, but I think her greatest impact was was when I was at university. And I know I mentioned earlier that I, I stopped drinking um, quite a while ago, but when I turned up to university, <laughs> well, I, I remember my first night at university, I, I, I drank orange juice, the second night I drank alcohol, and the third night I threw up. And, you know, fresh as wheat really did turn into sort of fresh as month and freshest year and I remember getting to the summer at the end of my first year and uh, had basically attended almost no lectures for the entire year and I went to get one of my past papers and um, realized I couldn't do any of the questions (laughs) unsurprisingly um, really and um, and my maths teacher called me out of the blue actually and she just said you know Darren how are you getting on and I said, well, um, well, not too well, to be honest. I said, um, you know, I've just looked at one of my past papers. I've got an exam in a, in a couple of weeks and and I can't really answer the questions and I haven't got any notes either. And uh, she goes, well, I've got a friend in Sheffield. And, um, so what I'll do, if you can borrow the notes off somebody, then I'll, I'll come up and I'll, I'll copy them into Braille for you. And so for those of you who don't know, Braille, Braille is what, what blind people use mm-hmm. to read. Um, you know, it's a sort of great little code that they've developed and, you know, you have raised dots that you can feel. So she came up to, to Sheffield and she spent three days copying notes into Braille for me. 
And I don't think it sunk in at the time. And probably it was quite a few years later that I remember sort of sitting there one moment and thinking, mm. and I remember her coming up and doing that and asking myself, well, why? <laughs> why would anybody do that? Because, mm. you know, most people, when you do, you know, when it's kind of self-inflicted, mm. which it was, you know, the, the reason why I was in that situation was because of my own bonard or this really um you know she she could have said well you know you get what you deserve in life and it's your own fault etc 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 um but she she didn't she she just she went the extra mile and you know we always say about going the extra mile but i i think she had no sort of jurisdiction over me at that point i think you know we expect our parents to do things for us because we're there their kids and we expect our partners to do things for Mm. us but I don't think you expect your teacher to do something for you when she's not even your teacher anymore Mm. and uh and I think that really inspired me to to want to you know help others in the way she did because Mm. I realized that when you do go the extra mile for someone that it, it can really change someone's life and so how did that change your approach to life once you had that realization I just realised that that's the kind of person I wanted to be. I, I wanted to be, you know, she was my kind of inspiration, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, anytime I, I, I enter a situation and I think, you know, I don't want to do that, that's that's a bit too much for me or that's, mm. you know, that's not what I want to do. I just, mm. I'm just constantly reminded of, of her. It's like, you know, what would she do? In, in this moment mm-hmm. you know and it, it's so often you know when you walk past a, a homeless person in the street you know or someone else asks for help you know and sometimes you're really busy or, or sometimes you haven't got the answers and you think you know can I can I go the extra mile is there something I can do even if I can't help them myself can I can I signpost them to someone who can um can I connect someone with someone who can help them and so yeah whenever those those call for help comes or you're trying to try and answer it did you ever reconnect with that teacher i did so about 10 years ago i i sent her an email um just just thanking her really and, and telling her you know how amazing she was and uh, <laughs> and she replied in a very very her kind of way she goes oh i always knew you'd be fine <laughs> and then last year i i went to see her i was I was um, speaking down at Worcester University and I, and she, that's where she lives. So I went to visit her. I mean, she's, she's in her eighties now. And, you know, I spent a whole afternoon with her just, mm. just, just talking to her and again, thanking her. Not that she wanted any thanks to be honest, but she, it was just, it was just wonderful to spend time with her and, and, and sort of show my appreciation for, for what she's done for me. I know you had another experience that certainly exceeded what you were expecting at the Professional Speaking Association conference last year. Yes, I, I went to Inspire in, in October last year and it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's the sort of national conference for professional speakers. It, it was in Coventry and, and I, I live in Birmingham, North Birmingham. So my plan was really to sort of travel in each day. And uh, you know, one of my fellow colleagues was had offered to drive me down um each day 
but when but when we got there, one of one of her friends had, had, had basically booked a booked a room at the hotel, but they'd given her a twin, so she basically had a spare bed. So she sort of said to my friend, "Well, you know, you might as well stay over rather than travel back each day." So <laughs> all of a sudden, I didn't I didn't have have my lift into the conference. So when I came in for the second day, um, I, I knew I, knew I was going to. I wasn't sure if I was going to stay over or not, but I'd brought my bag with me, etc. And then I decided I was going to stay over. So I, I kind of, I spoke to my, um, my VA, my virtual assistant said, you know, can you, can you book me a, book me a hotel? I said, just find me something, you know, cheap and cheerful, somewhere nearby to the venue. So as these conferences tend to be, you're at the conference all day, you're on your phone and you're kind of making notes on your phone and, and, and recording and the talks as well because I like to sort of listen back through talks afterwards and 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 see if I can catch things I'd have missed the first time round. And uh, so when it came to the end of the conference, I you know I was I, I was thought right, it's time to go back to the hotel now. You know I need to get changed for the for the gala dinner in the evening. So I met another colleague who was who said he was staying in this particular hotel. Um, so we started walking back to the hotel. It was literally a sort of a five, five minute walk, got to the hotel and, uh, and she goes, you know, what's your name? Gave him my name. She looks on the system. She goes, Hmm, you're, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not on the list. I said, Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's this hotel. Um, so I, I get out my phone. I show her the, the booking. She goes, ah, that's a different hotel. <laughs> so I, I'd booked to, um, I'd booked to stay in the Premier Class, which is definitely a cheap and cheerful place. And I was in the Premier, in, I was in the in the Premier Inn. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I had no battery on my phone, so I couldn't sort of use the sat nav for me to kind of work out how to get to this other hotel. And I also didn't have my my wallet on me. I didn't have any cash on me either. And so I think she'd sort of seen this sort of semi sort of fearful look on my face of what, or a how am I going to get to my hotel and and uh, and and basically she she just gave me 10 pound um of her own money and, and booked this ta- taxi for me and just said oh well, don't worry about it you know um you know here's a 10 here's a tenner and sent me off to this other hotel um so i was a little bit embarrassed really about sort of taking the money and and also that i'd sort of left myself in this predicament so mm. you know so i went off to my other hotel etc and then I kind of got home and thought I really do need to, um, you know, thank this lady um, for you know for for her generous deed. So I, mm. I rung up, I rung up the Premier and I rung up their their headquarters and I tried to find find this woman. I said, um, mm. you know, her name's Mrs. Robinson. You know, she's at the Premier Inn and I told her which one it was. And I said, well, you know, we've got no no record of her. Um, because I was thinking maybe they've got an employee of the month or something like that. I wanted mm. to sort of, you know, recommend her for that. Mm. And uh, they couldn't find her. And I thought, this is a bit curious. I'm sure I've got the right hotel. So mm. I was speaking at a school in Coventry a, a month later. So I, mm. I went back to Coventry. And after I did my, my speaking gig at, gig at this school, I decided to go back to the hotel. I thought, I need to get to the bottom of this. So mm. I got to the hotel and I went in. And um, I said, yeah, I'm, so I'm, I'm looking for a Mrs. Robinson. I said, no, we haven't got anyone by that name who works here. So I said, so I told them the story. I said, you know, well, I, I stayed here a month ago and 
you know, this woman gave me you know, ten pound for a taxi, and uh, even though it wasn't even one of her customers, um, so they they said, "Oh, what's the date of the event?" So they went back through the rotor, and mm. and pretty much by process of elimination, we worked out who it must be, uh, <laughs> and it wasn't Mrs. Robinson. She just, I think that's kind of her little act. That's kind of name she gave, mm. and and we worked out who it was, and. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I I found her, and you know I gave her this uh, this forty pound gift voucher, which so you know she she quadrupled her money. But more importantly than that is that she she got this kind of ma- sort of massive kudos amongst all of her colleagues. They they said, oh, she's in this afternoon, and you know when when she came in and stuff, they they you know they they literally put on a right party for her. And I remember her kind of calling me up, you know, later that afternoon and, and said, oh, you really didn't need to do that. And and that's what you you so often see with people who, you know, exceed expectations, go the extra mile, that they don't even think they've done anything particularly amazing. They just mm. do it because of the kind of person they are. Absolutely, yeah. That's an amazing story, yeah. Well, in, in the, your, you know, in the speaking that you do and the engagements you have, and the, the bookings that you get, what where do you think um, the sort of misunderstandings that people have with what what it is that you do? What what kind of things do you encounter? I think I mean, kind of thinking about this, I think we often think that it, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time um, to do extraordinary things, and sometimes it can take. It does take time and it does take money, but I think the rewards are are way greater than we ever thought. And, and if I if I take my math teacher's example, you know, yes, she gave up her time and I could never repay her in time, but I, I could pay it forward. I, I could give my time to help others. And then in terms of Mrs. Robinson, who isn't Mrs. Robinson, <laughs> you know, she she benefited, you know, in, in, in terms of, I think it's absolutely priceless in terms of the recognition that she gets from, from from her colleagues in, in the organisation, so I think I think what stops people from doing these things is that they think it's going to be an awful lot more effort than than they realise. But it, it it's it's so worth it if you can do it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, before we finish, Darren, what is the what does the phrase "exceeding expectations" mean to you? So I think I mean I I think so often you, when you hear about sort of the term expectations we think of it in terms of it being high or low but I think people often ask themselves the question what do most people do in most situations most of the time Mm. and I think that's a kind of a majority thinking mindset we're guided by what most people do Mm. and I think if you're going to exceed expectations you can't think that way You've, you've got to think the opposite you know what's never been done before you know, what, how can I, you know, break through this barrier? How can I do something different mm. from everybody else? And so, yeah, if I'm, if I'm going to exceed expectations, it's got to be something new. And it, and, it, and it can be something really simple. It doesn't have to be really complicated. Sometimes it's simple things and we think, oh, no one would ever do that. Mm. Uh, you know, just like what that lady did for me. Mm. It was something pretty small and pretty simple, but it's something that every single one of us could do. Mm. If people want to find out more about you, get in touch with you, whatever, where where would they go to? My website is darrenharrisgb.com. 
and also uh, I'm um, Darren Harris GB is my sort of social media uh, tag for, for for LinkedIn, Twitter, and and on all my other social media outlets. Yeah. Okay. And I believe you've got a, a quote or two even that, that you quite like. Well, I, I really wanted people to imagine uh, what it would do for their business if they had you know, raving fans without them even knowing, you know, because here I am talking about a couple of people who've done, you know, extraordinary things and, and neither of them know about it. But you know, imagine you had people in your own business who are actually championing what you do and what that's going to do for you when people, you know, come and seek you out. Um, so that's that's the first thing. But the, I suppose the phrase that's really guided me throughout my life is, if it was easy, everybody would do it. I think sometimes it's been really hard to carry on doing things that I do and there's always going to be challenges on the way. But I suppose I know for myself that that's that's me as a person. If, if, if I'm not doing this, then I'm not being true to myself. So sometimes it's easy just to uh, take the easy option or the quickest option. But as I said, if it was easy, everybody would do it. Well, Darren, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your, your stories and your yeah, some of the, the great um, examples that you gave as well. Thanks, Tony. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Next week is episode 84 with William Bust. He helps people to gain clarity, but he also helps them with self-doubt and and learning to see things from your customer's point of view, which is quite hard, but it's very vital. So that's next week with William Bust. Hope you enjoyed this week's show. Um, please do share it with anyone who would get some real value from this. Subscribe to us, leave a review. That would be really useful. And hope you have a good week.